Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle. I am joined today by Ian Smith, deputy companies editor. Hi, John. How are you doing? Not too bad. How are you? Not too bad. Alex Newman, who's written the cover feature this week. How are you doing, Alex? I'm good. Also well, thanks. Good, good. And over in the control room, uh, Mark Robinson, who's written the secondary feature. Good afternoon, John. How are you doing? Oh, reasonably well. Good. And uh, Graham Davis on the on the desk. Okay, so so when we were recording last week, we didn't know the result of the election, and now we do. So, but everyone's forgotten about the election in the wake of the Kevin Peterson fiasco. <laughs> so, exactly. so. In keeping with the rest of the world, let, let's not discuss Kevin Peterson. Let's not discuss Kevin Peterson. Let's discuss the election, because everyone's forgotten about that. What's going on, Ian, with the election? Because this has had a, a serious impact on shares this week. Uh, the unexpected victory, uh, majority gained by the Conservative Party, which we, we certainly didn't predict last week when we were talking. No, exactly right. Last week, we uh, were confidently predicting that nothing would be settled by this week, and we were wrong about that. Completely uh, wrong. Completely wrong. Um, and instead, we've got a Conservative majority, where most people are seeing a hung parliament or possibly a Conservative minority government. Um, and that was immediately welcomed in the markets, as uh, largely to uh, some people put down to kind of continuity of government, but obviously some sectors that would have fallen under the uh, under the hairpins of an interventionist Labour Party have done well, such as the energy company, the utilities. Also the banks, where um, Ed Miliband had talked about being tougher on uh, the bigger banks with a higher bank levy, um, but also creating more smaller banks. There was also fears that a left-wing, or concerns I should say, that a left-wing um, government might be more interventionist in the taxpayer-owned banks mm. or part-owned banks. Uh, so we saw shares in Lloyds and um, Royal Bank of Scotland rise after the election result. Yeah, it's big bounce, wasn't it? 6% there on the day by, uh, by the looks of this article, um, 5.3% and 8.1% percent respectively for SSC and Centrica on the day. I mean, we actually talked about this in a feature a few, probably about a month before the election, yeah. which you coordinated, didn't you, Alex? Um, yeah. So, I mean, what did you think of the result? I mean, did, were you expecting this? Uh, I wasn't, no. I was uh, I was out of the country. Uh, oh, best place I, to be, I yeah, think. Yeah, <laughs> escaping the result. But um, no, I mean, it was, it was very dramatic. And, uh, you know, as David Cameron said, all the commentators got it wrong. All the pundits got it wrong and the polls got it wrong. So... So did we, if we, yeah. were, if we, were, if yeah. we were back in the last... Well, having last said that, week. our feature didn't really predict anything. It was really no, it giving was... you a feel as to what, what sectors might be affected. And, and as it turns out, the ones we, we picked were, were the ones that investors were paying most attention to. I spoke, yeah, I spoke with, um, I spoke with uh, someone at the, uh, the LSE on Monday, and they, I think they said they'd seen double the, the amount of normal trading they would, they would expect on the Friday. So a- Across the board? Across the board, yeah. So that, that can, you know primarily explain some of the, the, the pretty huge swings at uh, SSC, Centrica and, and the banks that we mm. just mentioned. And it's mm. something that um, Stephen Wilmot, company's editor, picked up in his taking stock column this week, uh, questioning whether uh, the market should have been so uh, positive in its reaction and definitely pointing to Europe as an, a potential area of instability in the future. Because that's not too far away. I mean, the, the, so the promised referendum that uh, the Conservatives put forward were they to win a majority, which I guess maybe even they didn't expect. But now now that's going to have to happen because it's what they've promised. And I think there's even talk of David Cameron moving that forward, um, seeing it um, taking advantage of this momentum that the Conservative Party has. But he's going to face a real challenge there. I mean, from the business community, obviously the CBI has been quite vocal. They want very different things from what the Conservative Bank benches want. The, um, the CBI, as Stephen writes about in his column, are keen to um, um, not have stringent kind of employment labour controls in the UK. Free, free movement of 
Labour as well. I, I yeah, think free movement mentioned. of Labour is something that's important to them, whereas obviously the Conservative backbenchers are coming to it um, on uh, looking at immigration, looking at benefits, um, reform. Um, so it's going to be very difficult for him to please everyone. Mm. Um, and from what I understand of the, the, the backbench view of, of, of Europe, it's just that it costs an awful lot of money and, and doesn't actually deliver much in the way of benefit. Over and above what, sh- what you would have anyway, um, were, were you a trading partner of Europe? Um, and I guess I think Stephen alludes to the potential for tariffs to spring up that would make it difficult for, U- for UK businesses to, to do business with, uh, with trading partners in Europe. But, well, you, well uh, you say that, but uh, the UK runs a trade deficit with every, every other member state in Europe apart from Ireland. So, I mean, who's going to lose out? A trade deficit. So. Yeah, the UK runs a trade deficit with every other trading nation within the EU apart from Ireland. So we import more from the, from, from, from the, from the, the Eurozone than, than we export. So it's in their vested interest to uh, maintain non well normal trade relations with well, us, which would suggest that that you know the uh, the argument for uh, them to renegotiate the uh, the agreement with Europe is is quite strong in our favour. You would think so as well, because there were some conciliatory sort of messages coming out from Europe in the in the wake of the election as well. So I mean, people within the European Commission are obviously worried about uh, the the pledge on the part of the Conservative Party. And uh, we, we were obviously going to see a lot of movement of this in the next 18 months or so. Okay, very interesting. Um, and I think Stephen's point is that whilst the markets got off to a good start in the wake of the election, you know, I think this is a, this is a risk that hangs over us. And, and perhaps the market is discounting that uh, a little bit too much. Um, but, but markets have been weak this week anyway. And I guess this is uh, in the wake of the continuing bond sell-off. Yeah, so we, we, we saw that definitely spook equity investors uh, this week. Uh, and then towards the end of the week, just as we were going to press, we had um, some kind of softer forecasts from the Bank of England for the UK economy yep. um, following the, the weak Q1 figures that we've already talked about on this podcast. Um, so decent unemployment figures, though. But then at the same time, yeah, that came up just before you said the, the, the value of the pound was sent up by decent unemployment rate, which is down to its lowest level since 2008. And then the pound kind of fell again on the softer um, economic numbers. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the Bank of England described it as a solid economy. But then I saw some ONS figures which uh, showed a rising number of vacancies. And I think we've mentioned that in the seven days page this week. Yeah, so that's related. Job vacancies are up. So which is great which, for job which is good. Seekers. Yeah, great good for job seekers. Speaking of someone who uh, tried to get a job in 2010, which is down at the bottom of that line, but it's a little bit harder. Yeah. It's great for anyone getting into the labour force right now. But I guess then with so many vacancies, we run the risk that wage uh, demand starts to increase. And, and we've, we've, we've had some discussion around inflation this week, haven't we? We have had a discussion around inflation this week. The, the, uh, currently, the Bank of England are expecting inflation to move back towards the target towards the end of this year, possibly at the beginning of next year, reaching that 2% um, target that it's set. Um, the other thing that was good was that uh, wages also showed growth. So average weekly wages were up 2%, uh, 2.2%. Mm. So it's the fastest rate of growth in four years. So, it's, yeah, it's not just that um, employment is up. Obviously, wage growth is up as well. Mm. No, but it's, it's, it's interesting because the rising oil price as well, Mark, this may be something you have. And it's uh, something that... Uh it's on the front page of the FT today as well, but the uh, the improving oil price is uh, is obviously a big worry. We talked about this last week in terms of the inflation outlook, and one wonders whether whether inflation uh, is starting to brew up again. Uh, and obviously that has implications for savers because we still have very low interest rates. And I think one of the stories that you have are in the news section is that uh, real rates. Um, 
could potentially turn negative again. So, you know, as, as we move into a more inflationary environment and savings rates stay quite low, savers are going to get penalised. Yeah, exactly right. Chris Delos written about that this week. And what was also interesting, we had the Eurozone growth figures. I think it's 0.4% across the Eurozone, I mean, Eurozone economies. Um, a lot of that was driven by uh, low oil price. Um, kind of obviously, with prices low, um, consumer spending was up. Um, so if we start to see a change in that picture, it'll be interesting how that knocks on to the growth that's coming back in the Eurozone economies. Mm. Robbo, what's your view on the, the oil price? Well, it, it, it differs. I mean, I, I wasn't surprised at all that it's come back up to around about $65, uh, $67 a barrel. Uh, we had a, been expecting that move uh, prior to the end of the year. It's probably a little bit quicker than we had anticipated, really. But uh, I was speaking to Nicole Elliott this morning as well, and she was saying, like, from a t- technical uh, perspective, she, she's a, she thinks that's nestled in now. The, the low prices are, are sort of bottomed out, and it's coming down from a high point of $100 a barrel. That's when it first started moving down, and we're, we're somewhere in the midpoint now. So from a technical perspective, she um, fully expects the, the current range to... Uh, persist till the end of the year and looking at the fundamentals as well I, I would tend to agree with her uh, the, the FT report this morning um, points to the fact that Saudi ministers now believe that a lot of the um, the low margin production uh, in US shale has started to come off and uh, that's what we're generally seeing when you look at uh, the Baker, Hugh, Baker Hughes rig count as well that sort of confirms confirms that but um, I mean it's, the, 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 uh, the FT report is interesting because that suggests that the the oil price fall that we saw was a concerted effort by the Saudis to get this this low um, margin production out of the market. Well, th- th- those reports have been coming out for a while. I mean, th- there was another angle to this as well, um, and I don't know how true this is, but a lot of their uh, OPEC partners uh, hadn't been uh, they'd been overproducing effectively because their uh, their quotas are based upon um, their reserves, and they'd actually been overproducing and, and effectively uh, flooding the market. Um, and so it was, it was a twin prong attack from the Saudis, one to do with US Shell, but also to do with their uh, partners in OPEC as well. And so everyone has been suitably chastened now, and uh, hopefully we'll get back to a, a period of rel- relative stability. Stability, I think, is what people want. Exactly. And, and stability around about the $70 a barrel mark as well, because that uh, underpins a lot of uh, future production in the North Sea. Anything below that, it, it, it becomes questionable. Mm. Um, you know, obviously the. the the, the, the point is, we, we, we haven't seen the last of U.S. shale, though. Uh, I've read a lot of technical supports which suggest that a lot of the reserves now are becoming that much more, uh, much cheaper to extract. So at some point in the future, we may see, again, a flood onto the market. And what the Saudis do then, if most shale producers in the States can produce it for $25, $30 a barrel, is anyone's guess. Mm, but one has seen the power of the Saudis to, to, to control the market here. Yeah, well, that's right. But um, you've, you've got to say that it's a, a diminishing power. This might, be, in, in many respects, be uh, the last vestige of it. It's, it's, not, it's not in the U.S. interest to have a weak Saudi economy, strangely enough, as well. So they're, they're in a sort of... Um, uh, they're mute. It's a symbiotic relationship. The, the amount of um, U.S. defense remits that go towards uh, Saudi Arabia now is, is, is huge. Mm. So, same, same for us too, I guess. Yeah, yeah. same for us too. Um, Israel to a lesser extent, of course. Mm, absolutely. Um, 
I mean, one thing we haven't written about in the magazine this week, and I, I'm, I appreciate it might be putting you and, and Alex on the spot here, but, but the, uh, the aim uh, end of the oil and gas market has been savaged. Do we think conditions are going to improve there now, now that we have some stability around the oil price? Well, I think, I think that a lot of that comes down to the balance sheets. And uh, as uh, our old colleague uh, Matthew Allen used to point out, a lot of these companies were f- sailing fairly close to the wind anyway and were reliant on their ability. Well, they, they, were, they were looking to sort of raise capital at some point. They can't do that through tertiary finance, and they can't do that on market because share prices are so low. So where do they go? They just get snapped up by some of the majors. Mm. And uh, we, we've seen some evidence of that already, but uh, it's obviously going to become uh, more prevalent as time goes on. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think their ability to raise that finance will will, it, will ease now that we've I, seen some stability in the oil I, I doubt it very much. I doubt it very much. I think, uh, I think lenders themselves are, are slightly... Um, uh, a reluctant, slightly circumspect over markets generally, and uh, why would they even bother uh, going at that end of the market? And of course, if, if if they go for secondary capital raisings, share prices haven't recovered, so there's there's very little incentive. So caution, I, I think is caution, what we're saying here, um, as as usual. Another interesting story on the uh, news page this week is uh, Royal Mail, which has had a pretty difficult listed life so far. But we saw um, some action in that sector. One of its rivals has essentially cease trading or, or will cease trading? Yeah, Whistle has um, suspended its door-to-door delivery service, mm. uh, which shen- sent shares in Royal Mail up. We had a similar situation with um, the shutdown of CityLink. Um, okay. But most of the pro- the volume from that went to UK Mail. But with Whistle, um, Royal Mail is obviously seen by the markets to be a key beneficiary um, of uh, Whistle suspending that that service but Royal Mail there's still plenty of challenges facing that business obviously where they make the higher margins is the parcel delivery um, and that's also where they face the most competition um, so I think their full year results are on the 21st of May uh, so at that point we'll, st- we'll see just how good this news might be for Royal Mail or the other challenges that that company still faces mm, Absolutely Okay, well, I guess that kind of covers uh, the news this week. I mean, while I've got you in, let's talk about your uh, sector focus, asset managers, uh, which is also the subject of my editorial this week. Um, the co-founder of Hargreaves Lansdowne had some pretty choice words about uh, the asset management industry. Um, he described to one of our sister publications, uh, most fund managers as uh, complete morons, which I think is quite strong. He's suggesting, and I think he's not the first, that uh, actually they're not worth the money in fees that, that, uh, that a lot of investors pay them. Nevertheless, the, the, the asset management industry seems to be doing quite well still. You've discussed it on a video with Mark today, but give us a quick quick idea of what uh, you were talking about there. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the key graphs that I put together when I looked at this was comparing the asset managers that I've um, looked at in this sector focus to the MS, uh, MSCI World Index. Um, and on a 10-year view, as I've written, you might as well have bought the index, really. And when the markets are in good times, asset managers go up higher, and in bad times, they tend to fall lower. In really... It really kind of makes that point for, you know, why why would you pick stock by stock with uh, asset managers? Well, there's still obviously still winners and losers, um, but yeah, yeah, I have to say it, it, it's interesting to write about the fund managers in that way and just to see how much they are correlated to the market. Obviously, there are still winners and losers. It depends which markets they're exposed to. So I wrote about Ashmore, Aberdeen, obviously being affected by emerging markets. Those managers like uh, Jupiter and Henderson that have exposure and Schroders, obviously foremostly that have exposure to developed markets, especially. Europe I've seen really good especially retail flows and um, so those managers have done especially well 
Okay. I mean, I think um, I dug up some stats on actually uh, active management performance. And, you know, whilst you can point to years where active management does badly against sort of trackers in the market, actually, you can find years where they do well. And, and again, that that's, tends to be uh, caused by which asset classes they're exposed to. So as it turned out, years where small cap um, markets outperformed, fund managers did well um, because they tend to operate with a little bit more of an advantage at that end of the market. It's quite interesting. It's quite interesting. But I think the jury's out on, uh, on, on the value they add. And I guess your point is the jury's out on the value they add as, as individual investments <laughs> as well from a stock picking perspective. I think, you, uh, I think what I talk about is that you have to be quite brave to call, for example, the return of the emerging market sentiment among yeah. investors that will then drive the assets under management of these companies and thus their share price. And it's quite a brave call to say, well, I think investors are going to come back to emerging markets or come back to Japan equities. Um, so I'm going to invest in polar capital. Um, yeah, you're a brave person if you do it. But if you do do it well, and you're successful, there are potentially large returns because businesses like Aberdeen, very strong business, lots of good internal research capabilities. And um, when that sentiment turns, and also that company has done some good work to diversify its uh, asset classes as well. Mm, mm. And diversification is obviously something that asset managers sell as a good selling point of their funds, especially the new multi asset funds that are very much in vogue at the moment. But also diversification really protects text asset managers from swings in market sentiment. So those are the kind of things I try to get into in the piece. Well, I guess that's quite, I mean, that's quite an interesting uh, point. Um, so we um, often talk about asset allocation strategies and how <clears throat> actually we would encourage investors to be diversified across a range of asset classes at all time, um, not play the markets, not try and time the markets too much. And actually, over the long term, that diversification will, will be what delivers the returns. So, you know, but, but I, I do wonder whether people view these passive vehicles as a way to play market timing strategies. I'm going to, I'm going to dive into this passive because I can get exposure to emerging markets now. But again, that's just, that to me sounds a, a little bit like stock picking, except you're market picking instead. Well, it, and, and the whole the whole question of cost has come to the fore as well because there are, there are now alternatives. I mean, in the past, it was pretty difficult to get a no-fuss exposure to emerging markets, for instance. But if you look there's, with the rise of exchange-traded funds, you can do that for much cheaper now than, than going through, uh, through managed money, if you like. But that's true. But then, you know, that's going to give you exposure to an index, whereas you could argue that for example, if you were to buy something like Fidelity China Special Situations, you've got a fund manager on the ground there who, who is really been able to pick the very best of the companies in that market mm. and, and outperform. And, and, and you know, as, as the day suggests, if, if a small cap manager or if a fund manager, particularly in the small cap space, you know, has a very deep knowledge of his market, that's, you can find value. There. So I mean, I, I don't think the argument is clear. Well, exactly, as, as many make it out to be. Uh, and plus, a lot of the managers employ hedging strategies, uh, strategies as well, which help to sort of uh, flatten out any downswings in the market. Mm, mm. I guess. Uh, well, unanswered questions. Uh, yeah, yeah, we'll yeah. carry on trying to answer them. Okay, talking of asset managers, um, what we've done for the cover feature this week, Alex, is uh, actually try and pick up some. So I think asset managers are worth listening to. I've, you know, I disagree with Peter Hargreaves. I think that there are many very, very intelligent, knowledgeable, diligent asset managers out there. Um, and, and what you've done in the cover feature this week is round up some of the best practices that they, they use to pick, to pick stocks. Yeah, I mean, they can't all be morons, can they? Because otherwise they wouldn't be given trillions and trillions of dollars to... Uh to, to invest. So, I still think some might disagree with you on that point, but right. uh, but I don't I don't think there were more ones. And and you know, reading through this list, they adopt some very sensible strategies and strategies that that, that our readers, private investors, could do well to follow. So yeah, talk, so, talk us through your favourites. Yeah, so I, I mean, I features it's less uh, uh, advice on how you would balance a portfolio, more on some of the questions it's probably worth asking yourself 
at the point of investing in a, in a single company. So there was a, a survey carried out earlier this year by the accountants BDO. They spoke to um, over 100 very, very large fund managers. So these are sort of ginormous pension funds, hedge funds, private banks, uh, with about $10 trillion uh, under management. And they're asking the sort of things they look for when they're, you know, either at IPO or when they're going to, when, when they're planning to uh, invest in a company. Some of the some of the uh, uh, the points that came out of that were, were quite interesting. I think the uh, the BDO said that they the most interesting finding they they found was that that large fund managers don't pay too much pay attention to house brokers. Good, because never do we, right? <laughs> Um, and uh, obviously, for retail investors, house brokers aren't necessarily uh, aiming their research uh, in that direction. But they're, you know, they're very easy to find on the internet. It moves share prices. They get written about in the financial press, uh, and they are, you know, they, they, they are of note. But um, what I guess the, the the point to pick up on there is what you should be uh, careful of is the proximity to a house broker to a company. Yeah. Um, they're going to find some way uh, often of rating the shares a buy um, and you know they're incentivized to do so even though there are you know there are Chinese walls there mm. so large fund managers would typically look for independent uh, analysts when they're when they're researching a company which is uh, an interesting revelation yeah so, so when we talk about independent analysts so we're talking about so let's say it's an IPO yeah and you mentioned the specific example of Glencore for yeah. example when that when that came to market uh, lots of analysts were, were invited to write about the company mm. But they were essentially, I think, what we would call it in the industry is on site. Yeah. And there were very few companies who wrote about it who weren't involved in the transaction in, in some way. Yeah. And those that were tend to adopt a more sceptical viewpoint of the transaction. Indeed, yeah. So there's, I think there was 23 investment banks uh, as book, book runners or managers, which is a huge, huge number on, on that IPO. Uh, there was only Nomura, which in the first year... Uh, was a bit cautious about the. And that was one of the stock. one of the onside. It was, analysts. yeah, yeah. Uh, everyone else, it was a it was a buy or or ad rating, um, and that, that that company has has underperformed really. I mean, it's it's its share price has, has fallen quite consistently. What do you say, Robbo? Well, I would just like to point out that the IC was a skeptical, skeptical <laughs> right from the off. Independence, you see, that's what matters. That's, all that's it is. what matters. You you mentioned a couple of outfits here: um, MF Global Equities Research and Alpha Value. These are not the kind of uh, names that we're used to hearing when it comes to research. I mean, how do we how do we get this information? How do we get this research as a private investor? As a private investor, um, hard. It is hard. It is hard. I think when MF Global wrote about um, uh, wrote about Glencore, that was that was picked up in the financial press. So, okay, so there is so so, so there is coverage, coverage. indirect. Although yeah. it will be difficult as a as a retail investor to go to brokers or these analysts for their research because they're specifically aimed at institution investors. Yeah. There are ways of, 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 of getting hold of these uh, tips, though. Okay, well, so I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent because mm. I'm pretty sure I can't remember where I read this this week. But I mean, this independent research it's funded in a different way. So if you're a, if you're a house broker, if you're a, a broker who's involved in the transaction, you're you're essentially getting your payment for that research in a slightly different way. With the independence that research is potentially paid for by the the investment houses. But there's all sorts of weird shenanigans going on around this at the moment. Yeah, there's a challenge for um, asset managers there, especially because asset managers sometimes pay for research out of client funds. Yep. And that is what the European regulators are looking at banning. 
Um, so effectively, you'd have to be much more clear about where you're paying for the research from. It's really um, which has an impact then, obviously, on the managers who are more reliant on external research. It has an impact on uh, new myths, for example, on those brokers in terms of where the. Um, so I was talking with the CEO of New Myths uh, last week, and it's obviously an impact on where the money's going to come in for their research. Yeah, I um I actually used to be a a broker, an analyst uh, at a, at a stock broker, and uh, I was a house broker at one point, and I can sort of testify. To some of the things you're saying here, um, that that actually managing those Chinese walls and those relationships between the the, the front of house and the the back of house, the yeah the investment side of it is, is hard. Mm. Um, and we we uh, we eventually left, and we tried to set up an independent research boutique. And getting people to pay for research, no matter how good it is, is really hard because the industry is not set up to to work in that way. And you know you're. Your uh, common sense would suggest the independent research is better, higher value, worth paying for. But there's, you know, regulations like this. The, the industry seems to be making it very hard for these independent houses to operate. And I, I find it bizarre. So you're seeing, uh, for example, in the case of New Miss, what they're doing is focusing a little bit more on the corporate advisory side of their business, especially around M&A. Um, it's activities. where the money is. It's where the money is, but um, especially with these regulatory headwinds, you mm, see a lot mm. of um, those ha- kind of houses going in that direction. Yeah, I think independent research is uh, is a subject that we we ought to explore more in the future because yeah, it's had uh, it's it's had a tough time getting off the ground, and it's definitely where the value is, and it's what we at the Investors Chronicle try and do. We try and cut through. The, the kind of house brokers and all all of the uh, the kind of hidden relationships, and we try and actually form an independent view. But uh, anyway, so let's uh, let's cut away from that uh, uh, media message, as it were. Um, so you say you can hear some of these, you know, uh, views from these independent houses in the press, but but also fund managers tend to ignore the press. I think is your third point there. Yeah, would they? I think ignoring the press is uh, is uh, I guess uh, it's speculation is is probably the key thing here. So. Uh, I mean, I took a, took a couple of examples here. I mean, we'll, we'll see a lot of a lot of negative editorial about uh, about the banks, for example. You know, every time there's a new forex or LIBOR, uh, fine. It's easy to bemoan the banks and their you know woeful conduct. It doesn't necessarily alter the valuation of a company. So the the, the point here, I think, which which is 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 quite useful for retail investors that we can take from from fund managers is that sentiment may impact uh, a company but it it isn't everything and it's it can be sometimes easy to to get involved in the you know the emotive aspects of a of a story of a story of a company when there may be a a, a more solid underlying valuation yeah story there. So, so i guess the lesson to learn for the industry there is, is stay dispassionate yeah exactly degree. yeah so i mean they they also discount <laughs> uh things like corporate social responsibility uh sentiment of stakeholders such as employees and unions and yeah what do we what do we matter yeah indeed (laughs) indeed uh and obviously they do matter um and they do matter for a company's prospects but i guess yeah that underlines that 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 point of neutrality or dispassionate yeah i I guess in terms of i guess in terms of csr corporate social responsibility and employee relations they'd have to be very broken for it to impact the share price over the longer term but i I guess they matter in Mm. in some respects but as i said only only at the extremes uh okay the other thing that i thought was really really so there are some valuation stuff uh, that you mentioned here which is uh obviously makes sense farm managers what they do i thought the other interesting aspect was that their 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 fascination with the auditors well in not one to miss a trick bdo obviously asked hey what do you what do you think of us uh the, yeah, uh, the you accountants matter. you matter guys yeah. <laughs> uh, unfortunately for bdo they didn't pick bdo as one of the uh, uh signs of uh, of an investment grade company although bdo you know we, we should we should 
obviously thank them for the the research and they are you know one of the one of the leading auditors but I, yeah definitely but, top top 10 aren't they top 10, top yeah, 10 yeah there was a question in the research the fund managers were asked would the involvement of one of the big four accounting firms Deloitte KPMG EY and PwC impacts your uh, decision to invest in the company uh, overwhelmingly they said yes it would have a positive impact that's a very intangible element to a, a company that it's it, probably most investors would would overlook and when you look at the FTSE 100, it's almost immaterial because almost all of them are yeah. audited by the big four. What's more important is when you, you look slightly lower down the food chain, when you're looking at uh, companies where, where maybe their businesses are operating in far-flung places or they're very small, maybe quite nascent businesses uh, or new business models with, with um, perhaps more aggressive accounting standards, the involvement of a large uh, auditing firm can add a, a, a sort of credential yeah, uh, yeah, to to a uh, to, to a small company, which that, which is can be quite important. That's true. Diligence. That's true. We know it doesn't always work, though. Yeah, Quindel, Quindel. Haven't, haven't we also seen from larger institutional investors some pressure on cosy relationships or overly cosy relationships between well, companies um, and their auditors well, who, as well? Who, who dumped their auditor this week or last week? Tesco. Tesco. I think it was a thirty-two-year relationship that Tesco had had with. Uh, I can't remember who it was. PwC. Maybe yeah, it could have been PwC. PwC, but there's, there's statutory limits now as well. Are, are they really? Yeah, which they makes have, sense. They have to change every few years, don't they? Yeah, it's diff- yeah. difficult though when you've got businesses of that size. I mean, moving moving that that level of audit is, is quite hard. It's it's a very, I used to work in an auditor as yeah. well. But yeah, there's <laughs> European legislation and domestic legislation governing this now. And yeah. so they, yeah. no, it's fascinating. Anyway, so, th- th- so and there are some other factors as well. Yeah. Um, um, so I will leave you to, to actually go and read them in the magazine rather than giving it all away here but thank you for that alex i sure. thought it was a, a fascinating read um and you know my, my view is that you know you you, you as a, a private investor should definitely follow some of these best practices because i don't think all fund managers are as bad as they are sometimes made out to be and I, i've met some very good ones and the practices they they espouse are, are definitely definitely worth paying attention to thank you very much no problem. okay so uh just about time for a quick chat with uh, with you over in the control room, Robbo. Oh, BHP. Hello. BHP. So by the time we uh, get this out, um, it will be May the 15th and South 32 South, will come into being. South 32 will be uh, trading in London on a when-issued basis then. Which I, I had to look this up, actually. I should have known, but I didn't. Which describes a transaction and is made conditionally because a security has been authorised but not yet issued. So, I mean, they'll be operating, well, not exactly in a grey market, but something akin to it, I think, next week. But they list, they've got their primary listings uh, on the ASX, and they've got a secondary listing in Johannesburg as well. Okay. But uh, it's been a long time in, in the making, this okay. as well. What Before we get into the technical stuff, mm-hmm. in fact, let's not talk about the technical stuff. Sorry about what that. What is South 32? It's a spin-off spin from BHP. Yeah, it's a spin-off of uh, BHP's uh, non-core assets, Um Pretty much the the same group of assets that came along with um, uh, Billiton in the two thousand and one merger. Yeah, you cast some aspersions over the, uh, the the quality of the deal making that was done at that point. But well, uh, let's not let's not go into that too much. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, you know, in in retrospect, it's always easy to be, yeah. be wise. But you you look at the contribu- contribution uh, to earnings now compared to uh, uh, ten years ago, and it's uh, it's neg- negligible really. But if you're a BHP shareholder. You're gonna you're gonna be picking up some of the you're gonna have some of these shares now. You're gonna have you're gonna have these shares on a one to one basis, or you or you can cash out if you hold less than uh, ten thousand shares, which the majority of our 
uh, readership, I would imagine, probably falling that into that category. Indeed, but okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna cut to the chase. I think the most interesting thing for me in this was that there are some decent assets being spun out here. Yeah, biggest silver mine in the world. Yeah, and it, um, uh, it's it's a major uh, magnesium uh, producer as well. It's got very good nickel assets, nickel. and nickel's been strong lately. And these are important uh, commodities for steel production. Yeah, exactly. But uh, it's been the aluminium. Um, or aluminum, alumina, alumina uh, assets which have dragged on um, on, on BHP. Um, okay, uh, the so, last few years. So we we kind of put it, you put it or we you put a valuation together on this, and yeah. you reckon. So we know also that there are potential suitors for this business already. Oh yeah, uh, Mick, Mick Davis has uh, has been mentioned uh, Mick, in disp- Mick the miner, Mick the miner in dispatches before, formerly of Extrata. formerly of Extrata, and um, he's got his X two resource fund at the moment. So he's been looking around for uh, a group of assets, pretty much just like this, and uh, he's got form as well because uh, when he took over Extrata originally, that was uh, Glencore's uh, thermal coal assets, and uh, through a combination of. Uh, Canny acquisition and cost cutting. He built it up to one of the biggest mining companies in the world. So uh, that could be a, an avenue for uh, uh, South Thirty Two shareholders. Mm, uh, sorry, sorry, I mean from that I would conclude. Well, t- don't sell, don't cash in. Hold, no, take the shares and see what happens. No, I wouldn't Cause, either because uh, I mean you'd be you're selling sort of towards the, the bottom of the market as well. I mean it was valued. The valuations have been all over the place for this, but last September, for instance, Investec gave a valuation of about. Um, Eighteen, um, eighteen point four million dollars, I think it was, and that's since come back to about twelve and a half billion. And I've I've heard other uh, stories that are under ten billion. And, and well, I think you said Mick, Mick Davis offered ten. Well, there were stories. There were stories out that he'd made a, a sort of an informal offer, which valued the company at around about ten billion. And if you, you look on a share basis, then that works out at about one hundred and eighty-eight p a share, mm. which is pretty much what we. Uh, arrived at, uh, but we just looked at it on um, on uh, consensus earnings, uh, and based on their um, the, the sort of uh, the net earnings that the uh, these assets would generate over the course of last year, and just plucked well, we didn't pluck out a number, but we we based it on the sector a low point in the sector average, I think it was. So we got 172p. Okay, okay, there you go. Some value to be had, and you know, as we know. Um, a kind of rough and ready observation is that whilst the big mega mergers often struggle to create value, demergers often do the exact opposite. Yeah, and I just uh, reiterate that point. I mean, it, this is being conducted at the the low end of the market as well. And uh, South Thirty Two, they've been it's been quite generous in the way that it's been broken up because uh, they're carrying very little net debt, only about two and a half percent or so, um, based on uh, BHP's last full year accounts, I think. Um, and they've also got uh, revolving, uh, quite a large revolving credit facility. Um, the uh, the chief executive uh, is Graham Kerr, who used to be um, BHP Billiton's chief financial officer, so he's obviously uh, familiar with all the assets, and he's promised to try and grow the group organically, but he hasn't ruled out acquisitions as well, And you know, uh, given the state of the markets. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm reasonably optimistic I'm yeah. reasonably op- optimistic about this, even though that ever since it's been mooted, the valuations have slipped rather alarmingly. Yeah, and I think uh, you mentioned there's, there might be some short-term uh, volatility in the BHP price, but we shouldn't worry about it too much. It's going to be a technical factor that's making that. Well, th- th- this is, this was um, yeah this th- this was just something that uh, came up from uh, Macquarie Securities, looking at uh, South Thirty Two because the way that it's uh, listing, it's got its primary listing in, on 
and the ASX and a secondary listing in Johannesburg and a standard list in London, London, some of the institutions will have to sort of um, sell off by the usual thing to, to fit in with mandates. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you very much. Okay, so um, that rounds out the features uh, for this week. Um, results are starting to kick in again. Um, lots, uh, lots next week particularly, but we've had some biggies this week. BT, which is, uh, is flying. Uh, despite the fact that it, it managed to take pretty, just over a month to, to, to deliver broadband to my house. It's, uh, it doesn't seem to put off many of its customers, despite the fact it's an incredibly woefully organised organisation. But there, there you go. Um, big results from uh, SAB Miller. Um, the beer maker, which I think you covered, Mark. I did, I did. Doing well, apart from currency effects, which... Uh, apart from currency effects, and it seems that their soft drink uh, segment's done rather well as well. Well, yeah, water, I think, became the world's biggest selling soft drink this week. Oh, um, really? Yeah, apparently so. Um, EasyJet, um, still flying high. A few wobbles this week, but I think we're, sta- we're staying strong on that one. Um, but yeah, next week is when it all really, really, really kicks in. It's, uh, it's getting busy, isn't it, guys? It's going to be a fun week. It will be. going to be a fun week. Um, apart from that, um, I'll leave uh, the personal finance guys, uh, the personal finance team, to discuss uh, what they've read about this week in the podcast, in their podcast. Um, we have um, uh, a question of whether it's time to, uh, to turn back to the BRIC stragglers, uh, Russia and Brazil. Um, and we're also looking at what today's uh, new uh, pensions lifetime limits of a million pounds actually mean and how you work with them. It sounds a lot of money, but actually, in reality, it only buys you 50k a year as a pension, which uh, at today's prices, which uh, you know, I know what uh, the the, uh, the lifestyle in which our readers are accustomed to, not a great deal of money. Um, I wonder what the uh, new pensions minister will have to say about that, Ros Altman, is, Ros, uh, yeah, 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 absolutely. well known industry figure. I suspect she might want to put put them up a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Whether she'll be allowed to would be another Indeed. matter. Indeed. Um, uh, apart from that, stock screen, uh, ours has run a Lynch's stalwart screen, low peg, high growth, financially sound companies. He's found eight new uh, exciting shares there for a screen that's delivered 64% uh, total return over the last three years. The regular columns, Dillo, Bearball, Thompson, uh, have all had uh, some interesting things to say this week. And uh, apart from that, Kevin Peterson. Should he play or should he go? Ian. I know nothing about cricket. I'm going to say yes just to annoy you. Oh, God, great really innings, wasn't me. it? Alex. Against a great bowling attack, I hear. I'm, yeah. gonna, I'm going to say no just because I, I don't like Piers Morgan. <laughs> uh, in the control room, Robbo. Yeah, ditto. Graham? No. Yeah, no from me too. So, so I think we're at odds with the rest of the country there. Uh, and on that note, I will uh, love you and leave you. And uh, thank you all for your contribution this week. Um, pick up the magazine, all news agents, £4.50, and see you again soon. Thanks. Bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.